This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for Igeret HaTshuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We were discussing last week page 1110 that the Jewish nature is to be forgiving. If someone asks you forgiveness, sincerely, you have to forgive. And that's why when the Givainim, uh, when King David asked the Givainim to forgive Shaul for robbing them of their livelihood, they refused to forgive. So David says they're no longer welcome, they're no longer, could, uh, no longer allowed to marry into the Jewish people. Because they don't have Jewish tendencies of kindness, of mercy, of goodness, of compassion. And even though it was Shaul who sinned to them, Shaul never asked forgiveness. But since King David, David HaMelech was the king, representative of the Jewish people, Shaul sinned towards the Givonim by killing out, destroying Nov, the Mishkan, and destroying the priests. And therefore, depriving the Givainim, who are the water carriers and the wood choppers, who service the temple. So by destroying the priests, he basically destroyed them, destroyed the livelihood. So, um, Shoal died without asking them forgiveness. But Shoal did it as a king. He did it as a leader of the Jewish people. He didn't do it as an individual. He was the king. So even though Shaul never asked him for forgiveness, and the law states, when do you have to forgive? If the person who sinned to you asked for forgiveness. In this case, why, why should the Givainim forgive? Shaul never asked for forgiveness. David is asking for forgiveness. Very nice. You, you, you didn't harm us. We want the one who harmed us to ask for forgiveness. But nevertheless, Shaul did it as a king, as leader of the Jewish people. So therefore, when David was asking him on behalf of the Jewish people, please forgive they should have forgiven. And since they didn't forgive because it was so hard-hearted, they refused to forgive. So David says, you're not Jewish. You don't have the signs of a Jew. And he adds the word, Allah HaShalom. Peace unto him. Which is an expression that you usually say of a person who passed away. But David, King David, is mentioned many times in the, in the Tanya. And he doesn't add the word Oliver Shalom. It's not always a description that he adds. We're talking about David. David, Melech Yisrael, Chai David is alive. We're talking about David as someone that's alive. We don't, we don't talk about David as Oliver Shalom, someone who passed on. Why is al Rebbe here say Oliver Shalom passed on? Because he's trying to, to subtly explain that although Shol and David were opposites, how could you say that David represented Shaul when David was asking for forgiveness. He represented Shaul. Shaul and David were in conflict. Shaul tried to kill David because they had two different approaches to serving Hashem. Two opposite approaches, as a matter of fact. Shaul's approach to serve Hashem was to use your mind. Serve Hashem with all your talents and all your abilities, your individuality, your personality. 
and using your mind. You should enjoy, you should understand, you should relate to it. What? That's almost Greek. Uh, yeah, and that, but that was Shaul's approach. You have to serve Hashem with your mind, you have to be aware, you have to be mature, you have to be intelligent, you have to use your mind, your critical thinking. That was Shaul's approach. David's approach, however, was simple. You have to be a faithful soldier. Hashem commands us and we listen. We like it, we don't like it, we feel like it, we don't feel like it, we understand it, we don't understand it. This is the emiss, this is the truth. A soldier gets his orders, whether it makes sense, it doesn't make sense. The only reason a soldier has a head is because he has to keep his helmet on. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't, you have to do, follow. And that was, Shoal's, that was David's approach. And there was a conflict. So much so that Shoal was jealous of David and he wanted to kill him. Because the, fam- the two royalties, the two kingdoms clashed with each other. And David was the one who triumphed because David was the, 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 the better approach, the, the truer approach. That's why Hashem despised Shaul and he took away his kingdom. He took away his kingdom from him very quickly because since he didn't listen, he didn't obey, right? There were a few occasions when Hashem gave him a simple order and he didn't obey. And the most important one is he left Agog alive. He had Rachmanus, and he left Amalek alive. Shaul was a God's anointed one. He was a holy Jew, and he was the first Jewish king. And he was head and shoulders above all the rest of the Jewish people. But, but he used his mind, and he thought that that's the right thing to do. To salvage, to save the king Agog, the king of Amalek. To glorify Hashem by saving the king and showing the trophy. It made sense logically, but that's not what Hashem asked him to do. Hashem says, wipe out every last member of Amalek. And because he had Rachmanus on a, on a gog, it's like having Rachmanus on a cancer. History repeats itself. And you have Rachmanus, and one cell in the cancer metastasizes, and it will eventually, Haman came out of that, of that gesture and almost wiped out the entire Jewish people. That's what happens when you have Rachmanus on a Nazi. It just comes back to bite you. The merciful thing to do with the tumor is to destroy. That's merciful for the tumor, merciful for the body and for everything, everyone else. Um, but you have to have strength to do that. You have to believe in Hashem to be able to do that. But he's a tumor. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's be nice. Let's smile. Let's, let's love it. Oh, don't love the tumor. Don't have a cup of coffee with the tumor. Don't negotiate with the tumor. Don't make any truces with the tumor. Only one purpose for that tumor. It has to be completely destroyed. Fascism, Nazism, terrorism, Arab, Arab Nazism has to be completely destroyed. But this takes strength. And David, who had a simple faith in Hashem, this is what Hashem tells me. If I understand that, I don't understand it. This is truth and I do it. So in the battle and the conflict between David and Shaul, David prevailed. David's approach was true, truer. And that's what the Rebbe is saying. Yes, there was a conflict between Shaul and David. But the conflict was one-sided. Allah HaShalem, David was a man of peace. The conflict was not on David's part. David didn't try to harm Shaul. David respected Shaul. Even when he had a chance to take his life, he didn't. He respected him and he loved him. The conflict was one-sided. Shaul had a problem with David. David rubbed Shaul the wrong way. David only had the utmost respect. It was an awe of Shaul. Because when a person obeys, has a symbol of obeying Hashem, it doesn't negate, it's not anti-intellectual, it doesn't negate your mind, your talents, your abilities. On the contrary, the simple 
accepting the yoke of heaven and simple obeying and following the Torah simply, that's the foundation. When you have a healthy foundation on top of that, you can use your mind and use all your talents. David was brilliant and David was the head of the Jewish Supreme Court and David was a brilliant Torah scholar and he had all the qualities and he was talented. And, but the foundation was very solid. His rock of Gibraltar's foundation, his um, cornerstone was simple obeying Hashem. Literally, don't be too smart, don't get too clever, just do what Hashem asks you to do. Because Hashem is so much greater than our mind, so much greater than all of us. Once that's simple and that's clear, then you can build on top of it and you can have all those other qualities. So he, David, on his part, was not in conflict with Shaul. What Shaul represents, serving Hashem with your mind and, and engaging your mind and engaging your, your individuality and your personality and your talent, you should, you should enjoy your Yiddishkeit. Of course, David said, I have no problem with that. He admired Shaul. He looked up to Shaul. He was his father-in-law. He was the anointed one. He respected him and he admired him and learned from him. But there was a clear foundation. And we see the contrast in the prophets. Whenever Hashem gave David instructions, even if it was difficult for him to carry out, David listened. He waited. Navi tells the story that once he was doing battle with the enemy, and Hashem says, don't fight back until you hear the rustling of the, wheat, of the leaves. And the enemy was approaching and all his generals were getting already anxious already. Please, let us shoot. No. Hashem said, the prophet says, not until I hear the rustling. So everyone was going crazy already. And David didn't budge. And the moment he heard the rustling, that's when they shot and they won a glorious victory. But that took, that took iron nerves. And that took courage and nerves of steel. This is what Hashem says, this is what I do. While Shaul caved into pressure. You know, Hashem says, wait. Well, I can't. Not really, not literally. Wipe out all Amalek. Well, not exactly. 99%, but not 100%. Hashem says, you're not for me. I told you to do something. Very clear. Just do it. Don't ask any questions. Do it. So he didn't have that quality. So Shaul was jealous of David. He was in conflict with David, but David was not in conflict with, with uh, David. That's why he says, Shalom, Peace unto him. He doesn't mean peace unto him that his soul is resting in heaven. David, Melech Yisrael, David is alive. And it means peace unto him that his path was peace. He was in, at peace with Shaul. So therefore he could represent Shaul when he is asking for forgiveness from the Givainim, he's not only asking as a private person, he's asking as the king of the Jewish people. But you can ask, but his asking is not the same as Shaul's asking, because he was Shaul's enemy. So the Givainim could rightfully argue, you're asking, you are Shaul's enemy, he's also our enemy. We, we have more in common, than how could you represent Shaul? You can't ask for Shaul forgiveness. He hated you. He mistreated you. He tried to kill you. Just like he mistreated us. So what right do you have to ask for him? That's why he says no. David was at peace. David was a peaceful person. David was not at war with Shaul. David had the utmost respect for Shaul. So he says, you're wrong. I'm not at war with Shaul. Shaul is my father-in-law. Shaul is the first anointed one. The first Jewish king. And I'm in awe of him. And I am representing him. And I'm asking in his, in his name, in the name of the Jewish people... Please forgive him. Whatever he did for you, just forgive him. And he had a right to ask. And because they didn't, when they didn't, they were so obstinate and they were so cold-hearted. 
hard, hard-hearted, he says, you guys are not Jewish. You're not allowed to marry. You're never allowed to marry another Jew because you don't have the qualities, the essential qualities of a Jew, which is forgiveness. And as he quoted, we, that even someone chops up your hand, God forbid. You have to forgive him, and it says you have to forgive him, or you have to ask us three times. And weren't they already converted, though? Givainim. Givainim, no. Givainim were not allowed to marry the Jewish people. David decreed in them, from that time on, they were never allowed to marry a Jew. No, you're mixing it with the Kutsim. Uh-huh. Kutsim. Kutsim was uh-huh. later on. That came after the destruction of the uh-huh. first temple. Uh-huh. So the idea of Teshuva, the idea of Teshuva, a very, an essential part of Teshuva is asking forgiveness. When you sin, when you commit a sin with a man and man, it's not enough to do Teshuva to ask God for forgiveness. You have to ask the person for forgiveness. The person has to forgive. Your sin, your atonement is incomplete until you obtain forgiveness from the person. And there's two types of forgiveness. There's a forgiveness where the person says, you know what, I'm not going to take you to court. I forgive you. I absolve you. But does he really forgive the person? No. The relationship is not the same. I'll never trust you again. I'll never talk to you again. I'm never going to invite you into my house again. I'm not taking you to court. I forgive you. I'm not taking you to court. Forget about it. But don't, don't bother wasting any breath on me. I'm not going to talk to you again. I'm never going to trust you again. Is that real forgiveness? That's not forgiveness. Yes. The, he's not taking you to court and he's not pressing charges. But that's not forgiveness. You hurt him. You hurt his feelings. He doesn't want to look at you again. He doesn't want to talk to you again. Every time he sees you, his whole insides, <laughs> you ruin his day. So what, what kind of forgiveness is that? That's not forgiveness. If you insulted someone and you hurt someone until you make good, until you make up with him, that he genuinely forgives you. And, now he, and he can look at you in your face and look at you as a friend and trust you again and really make up and really forgive you. And for that, you have to ask for forgiveness. You have to humiliate yourself and ask for forgiveness. You have to, you have to lower yourself and ask for forgiveness. You have to come with a broken heart and really say, I'm sorry, I hurt you, and it's inexcusable, and it's my fault, and I take full responsibility, and I understand that you, you have no obligation to forgive me, but I'm still asking you, please forgive me. I can't live with myself, I can't believe what I've done to you. The person sees it, the person is sincere and genuine, and is brokenhearted, then it says you should forgive. And he asks once, he asks twice, and he asks three times. After three times, he's no longer obligated to ask. Even though it does say, if a person asks three times and the person doesn't forgive him, you should take a minion, a, a minion of Jews, and you should tell them, I ask forgiveness, and he doesn't want to forgive me. So at least you're telling Hashem, listen, I'm sincere, I ask forgiveness. I asked him once, I asked him th- twice, I asked him three times. It takes courage to admit your failure, especially to another person, especially to another Jew, especially to someone that you hurt. It takes a lot of strength and courage, moral courage to do that. And you did it, and once, and twice, and you begged, and you pleaded, and you were sincere. And yet he refused, he's hard-hearted, listen, there's nothing more you can do. So some say you should take a minion, just like, what if you hurt someone? And before you had a chance to ask him forgiveness, the guy dies. At that point, 
What's the point of asking forgiveness? He's dead. But nevertheless, Jewish law says you should go to his grave, take a minion of Jews, ten Jews, and in front of them ask forgiveness. So at least in your part, you're doing your part. You're asking forgiveness. Asking forgiveness is key, is essential in atonement, in fixing what you've done. You can't just give back the money. Okay, I'll write him a check and I'll give back the money. You hurt him. You insulted him. You hurt his feelings. You created bad energy. You have to undo that. You have to create good energy, positive energy. You have to ask forgiveness and mean it. Now, the person who is hurt, the person who's being asked forgiveness, for his part, for his part, he should be forgiving. Because a person who's a Jew, who's kind-hearted, someone asks for, for your part, don't be a grudge. It's not good for you, it's not healthy for you to run around with grudges. Because if you truly have faith in Hashem, you truly believe in Hashem, you think that Jew hurt you? You think that Jew has, a, has, has the power to hurt you? No one can lift a pinky against you unless it was decreed in heaven. So why am I so upset at him? It's, it's Hashem. It's a, a fault of mine. It's a problem that I have between me and Hashem. So I'm going to bear a grudge against that person and destroy myself. It's self-destructive. I'm running around with his anger, with his grudge, with his being upset. First, I'm only killing myself. I'm only harming myself. So it's not good for your own self. It's not good. When we say the Shema, before we go to bed, the first paragraph we say, I forgive everyone who insulted me or hurt me. I forgive everyone. Even... If the person didn't even ask me forgiveness, I'd forgive him. Because I don't want to, I don't want to go to sleep with a grudge and with anger. And with, because it destroys, I just destroy myself. Who, who am I hurting? I'm just hurting myself. It's not good. For my own good, my own well-being, spiritual and psychological well-being, it's not good for me to walk around with all this anger. and I become a fabissenkite person. But how much more so I have an obligation if someone asks me forgiveness? And he cannot achieve an atonement unless he's forgiven. And if I walk around with a grudge and I, I'm really angry at him, he'll never be forgiven for his sin. So if someone asks me, and he's sincere, as a Jew, you have to be kind-hearted. I can give him forgiveness. It's very empowering. I can forgive him. Puts me in the driver's seat. I can forgive him. What a, what, a, what a wonderful thing. So this is the sign of a Jew. So if that's the case between one human being and another human being, how much more so that Hashem is forgiving? If we ask Hashem for forgiveness, surely Hashem will forgive without any hesitation. And that's why we make the blessing in the Shemona Esri three times a day. We ask Hashem for forgiveness and immediately Hashem forgives us. Just because we ask and immediately Hashem forgives us. Because we ask sincerely. We're not talking about when you're racing through the davening and you finish before you start. <laughs> That's not the, we're talking about the real davening with, with a heartfelt and shed a tear or two. <laughs> a real davening. Is there anything that Shem wouldn't forgive us? Would not forgive us? Nothing. If we ask sincerely. Like nothing, absolutely nothing? If we ask sincerely. Here he says, even if someone chops off your arm, you have to forgive him. Could you think of something worse? Okay, not if he chops off your head, because he won't be, he won't be around to forgive him. <laughs> what if he chops off your arm? Can you imagine? He made you a cripple. And if he asks you for forgiveness, you have to forgive him. The him, 
who didn't want to forgive Shaul, who never asked them personally for forgiveness, <coughs> for ruining their livelihood, for killing them, for, and yet, because they wouldn't forgive. David says, you're never allowed to marry ever a Jew again, because you don't have that Jewish quality of being forgiving and kind. And so how much more so than Hashem? If that's the case, why are we praising Hashem? Blessed are you, God, that you're forgiven. Is that a great praise for Hashem? If even we, human beings, flesh and blood, forgive each other so quickly. Ideally. You know the story with the Yom Kippur? The rabbi calls in the two Jews to study. They're always fighting with each other. He said, listen, I refuse to go out to call Nidre. As long as the two of you are fighting... It's Yom Kippur today. You have to forgive each other. So until you make up, I'm, I refuse to go out to Shul. The rabbi's calling with the study, right, for Yom Kippur, all dressed in white. Okay, so they shake hands. They, okay, let, let's, let's put it behind us. Let's bury, bury the hatchet. The good friends, they hug each other. And fine, the rabbi's very pleased. They go out, they go daven. After davening, they bump into each other. The one says to the other, I prayed for you exactly what you prayed for me. The guy says, you're starting up already? <laughs> so this is... Uh... <laughs> but here, if the Torah says we should forgive each other right away, and quickly, how much more so Hashem? Just because we asked, it's not even a doubt. Because if it was a doubt, then you were not allowed to make a blessing. You're not allowed to make a blessing in vain. So if it's in doubt, if you have to make a blessing, you're not allowed to make a blessing. Even though blessings are rabbinic, but to make a blessing in vain is biblical. You're not allowed to mention God's name in vain. It's one of the 613 mitzvot. The Ten Commandments. Don't, don't mention God's name in vain. So if, if you're in doubt whether God is going to forgive you, then, then it's a blessing in vain. <coughs> Thank you, Hashem, who forgives us, who says He's forgiven just because you just asked me for forgiveness, I'm going to forgive you right away, just because you just asked me, just for that? What's so fast? Why should I forgive you? But we're so certain that just because I asked, just based on, and I asked sincerely, obviously, based on that, Hashem is going to forgive us. It's not even 1% doubt. It's 100% we're so certain. Because even if a human being, we are supposed to be forgiving, how much more so Hashem was forgiven? So what's the great praise of Hashem? Blessed are you, God who forgives. This is for us, it should be a natural thing. So he says, that's what we're up to. Page, in the middle of page 110, as to the fact. As to the fact that we praise and bless Hashem as being the gracious one who abounds in forgiveness, the verb chosen is marbeh, abound, implying a quality unique to Hashem. What's unique about Hashem is the fact that He forgives in abundance. That's something unique to Hashem that we don't find amongst us, amongst human beings. Only Hashem could forgive in abundance. We are not capable of forgiving in abundance. And he'll explain. Ezra 2, we find that Hashem pardons abundantly. Now, in Ezra, if you look in the whole book of Ezra, and Nehemiah, you don't find anywhere, there's no, not a single verse that says Hashem forgives. So what's he referring to? He's not referring to a specific verse. He's referring to an incident in Ezra. A very, very powerful piece of history we find in Ezra. When the Jewish people came back to build the second temple, came back to the land of Israel, so Ezra found that many of the Jews were intermarried. And he gathered them all together. And he said, 
you have to separate from your non-Jewish wives. And since they all burst out crying, and they confessed, and they separated from the non-Jewish wives. They did. They did. They did. This happened. This is history. History. It's in Tanakh, in, in, in Ezra. And, and, and then Ezra tells them, don't feel bad. Now go and feast and be merry and be, be confident that Hashem had forgiven you. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about something that, according to Maimonides, is the worst sin in the, in the world. According to Maimonides, for a Jew to live with a non-Jew is the worst sin in the world. It's worse than any, even adultery, worse than all of the others. Why? Why is it worse than adultery? There's no capital crime. It's not a capital crime. Adultery is a capital crime. Because he says, because it's the only way that a Jew could become a non-Jew. How could a Jew become a non-Jew? A Jew will always remain a Jew. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. But a Jew becomes a non-Jew because when you give of your essence, and when you give birth through a non-Jewish woman, the child is not Jewish. So basically you're transferring the Jew to a non-Jew. It's the only way you can transfer you can, a Jew to a non-Jew. There's no other way it's even possible. And that's why in the Torah, in the story with Pinchas, the Torah says that if a Jew has relations with a non-Jew in public, then uh, a zealot, he deserves to die, and a zealot has a right to take his life right then and there, if he catches him in the act. Because in a certain sense, this act is worse than any other act. Because a Jew is uh, trespassing the boundaries between Jew and non-Jew. He's transferring Jew to non-Jew. So here, there were individuals, thousands of Jews, individuals who intermarried, who were not married to Jews. And they cried on their own. It wasn't some collect, it wasn't some from heaven. They came and they cried and and they asked forgiveness and they resolved never to do it again and they separated from from the non-Jewish wives. And nevertheless, Hashem forgave them. There was no extenuating circumstances. There was no Moses who was praying for them. There was no extenuating circumstances. There was a bunch of individuals that got lost, that assimilated. And nevertheless, they asked Hashem for forgiveness. And Ezra tells him immediately, don't feel bad, Hashem has forgiven you. And you can start and build your life all over again. So we see from the story of Ezra that Hashem pardons abundantly. To pardon for such a sin. So to put it into context, what motivated them? How did they come to realize that they should do that? No, it was Ezra. It was Ezra. Ezra Ezra inspired them. Ezra gathered them and he inspired them. They were building the second temple and he inspired them. Listen, Jews today, unfortunately, are like... uh, princes and princesses that were kidnapped. They don't know anything about their Jewishness due to no fault of their own. And therefore, due to no fault of their own, they made very poor choices, but they simply didn't know any better. A person is kidnapped, doesn't know, doesn't know anything. You know, he's not held responsible for his actions. He doesn't know what, he doesn't know what he's doing. But um, 
this is something that they've done, a sin that they've done, and they've done it repeatedly. They lived together for many years. So this was a constant repetition of, according to Maimonides, in a certain sense, the worst sin in the world, in the Torah. And nevertheless, there was no, Moses wasn't praying for them, there was no extenuating circumstances, they just confessed and they cried and they asked forgiveness and they changed their ways, they, they gave up their non-Jewish wives and Hashem forgave them right away. That's what it means, Hashem is abundant. He forgives abundantly like we find by Ezra. In the case, in the story of Ezra, that whole story of Ezra, we find Hashem's pardon, how Hashem's pardon, how Hashem pardons abundantly. This means in the mortal world, if one person harms another and asks his pardon, which is granted, and then repeats the misdeed, it becomes very difficult to grant pardon again, and certainly a third and fourth time. If he does it one time, he does it a second time. Okay, now, okay, come on. A third time? And a fourth time? I mean, this is like a joke. You're going you're gonna to hurt me, then you're going to ask forgiveness? Is it become a ritual? Hurt me, ask forgiveness, hurt me, ask forgiveness? After a while, you stop... This is not serious. And you're not in the mood to forgive. forgive. First time you ask, okay, I'll forgive you. You're sincere, you're messed up, but you have the courage to admit to your mistake, I'll forgive you. Second time, hmm, third time, fourth time, forget about it. But that's only true of a human being. By the standard of Hashem, however, there is no difference between once and a thousand times. Although we do find by Hashem Himself, Rashi says, that when the Jewish people sinned, they were asking for the, for the slav, for the geese. They were asking for chicken, for meat. And it says, Moshe threw up his arms. He says, listen, you sinned once, I asked. You sinned twice, I asked. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's already a routine. It's already a, it's predictable. Hashem is not going to forgive you. So we find that even Hashem's forgiveness is also limited. Just like a human being. If you ask once, fine. Twice, three times. You know, fool me once, fool me twice. But three times, four times, that's it. Enough already. So we find even by Hashem, we find that there's a limit. And the answer is, yes. The way, the way, there is the way Hashem interacts with us in a human form, so to speak. So when Hashem's mercy limits Himself into a human, to a limited way, just like a human being, then you're right. And just like a human being, there's a difference between the first time and the second time and the third time, then you're right. But when, you, when in, in relation to Hashem's mercy and compassion, in relationship to Hashem Himself, Hashem is infinite. So what's the difference between once, twice, three times, a thousand times, a million times? It's all the same. To Hashem, it's all one. A thousand is like once. A million is like one. You know, it's like the old joke, someone t- turns to Hashem and says, King, uh, King David writes in Psalms, by Hashem, a thousand years is like one day. So he says, listen, Talmudic logic, if one thousand years is like one day, a million dollars is like a dollar. So please give me a dollar. <laughs> so he hears a heavenly voice. He says, sure, no problem. Wait a minute. <laughs> so that's a, 
So, Bahashem, a thousand and one, and a million is all the same. It's all one. Hashem, Hashem is infinite. So, there's no difference between once, twice, three times, four times, a thousand times. And that's the difference. Hashem's forgiveness, there's absolutely no difference the third time or the fourth time than the first time. And if Hashem forgives, that any limit. There were yeah. times, there were instances where we read that the Jews, Jewish people do something absurd and still have to pay penance for it. Like any of them. Here, all right, we're talking about like... The ego. Saul, okay? He said, I told you what to do. You didn't do it. So was he forgiving him? And then said, I forgive you, but uh, i got to give you a shot. Well, that's... That, part, there's, like a, there's an imbalance here. Part of forgiveness, we learned earlier, in the beginning of this whole uh, part of yes, the Tanya. Yes, yes. When Hashem forgives us, then pain and suffering is part of the the process, part of the purification process, the, the, the cleansing process. It's only when Hashem forgives you and Hashem is pleased with you that He puts you in a cleansing program. Mm-hmm. If He doesn't care about you, then you're not going on any cleansing program. So the cleansing is actually part of, is a sign that Hashem loves you. So He's putting you in a cleansing program. So that's part of the cleansing program. If you messed up very badly, like a sin of a golden calf, which was a general sin, we're still paying till today. Till Mashiach comes, we're still paying the price. Because we have to undo the effects of that. Because it has such global, well, global effects. I forgive you, but I'm not... But no, I forgive him, but... I can't but let you slide. If I forgive you, if you stole $1,000 from me and I forgive you, you still have to pay me the $1,000. That's right. I forgive you for hurting me, but you still have to pay back what you've done. When you sin, you create damage. You created a scar. You've got to make up for that. <laughs> That's... That's part of the forgiveness process. You're going to make up. You're going to do good. You're going to make up for what you've done. So whatever the sin is, commensurate to the sin, that's the commensurate, the tikkun, the fixing, the mending that needs to be done to make up for that sin. So a big sin needs a lot of fixing. Small sin is... So what would be the result if you didn't ask for forgiveness? But even if we mend, if we don't get forgiveness, if we don't have that personal forgiveness and personal relationship, then our relationship is not the same. We want the trust back. We want the relationship to be back and a good footing and a intimate. We want to feel intimate with Hashem. We want Hashem to trust us and to. So that you have to ask forgiveness. So if you ask forgiveness, Hashem forgives you. And He says that since Hashem is infinite, therefore His forgiveness is also doesn't matter the thousandth time is just as powerful and potent as the first time. See, by a human being, let's say a person could forgive a thousand times. Let's say a person has a big heart and he's ready to forgive a thousand times. But the fact that after, but a thousand and one not, what does that tell me? It means that every time the forgiveness becomes a little weaker. It's like it says, when does the child, when does the person start dying? The moment you're born, the second second, the second second of your existence, you already start dying. One cell dies. Because the fact that you only live till 120, it doesn't start by 120. That means a second later, now I could only live 119. I can't live. I don't have the strength to live now for 120. With each passing second, I become weaker and weaker. It's like a light, a light that, that reaches a certain distance. As the light leaves its source, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker until it peters out. 
So it means right away it starts getting weaker. As soon as it leaves the source, it starts getting weaker. Or my voice. A person projects his voice. The chazan projects his voice. But the fact that at a certain point you can't hear him, that means that it starts getting weaker immediately. It means it's limited. And therefore the moment the voice leaves the mouth, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And it gets further away. It gets weaker until it ends. So if something is limited, if something ends, comes to an end, that means that right away it's already weaker. But the fact that Hashem is infinite and unlimited, that means that there's no difference between the second time and the third time and the fourth time and the thousandth time. That's why it says that we see Hashem's wonder from looking up to the heavens, seeing this, the, the moon and seeing the sun and the moon and the stars. Why do we see Hashem's wonders by looking up at the sun and the moon? Because the fact that the sun doesn't get weaker. We're 5,773 years, and the sun didn't get one iota weaker. It's impossible. Anything that's finite just has to get weaker. Every passing moment, because now it could only exist, let's say the sun has a potential to exist, whatever it is. But the fact is it should get weaker and weaker. And the fact that the sun is just as strong today as it was the first day it was created, that's an expression of God's infinity. So by looking at the sun and the moon and the stars, you see an expression of Hashem's infinity. That there's no difference between one and two and three and four and five and a million. It's all a million. It's like one. It's all the same. And therefore, there's no weakness. It, doesn't get, it gets stronger and stronger, not weaker and weaker. So, the, so therefore, Hashem's forgiveness the thousandth time we ask Him is just as potent and just as powerful and just as real as the first time we ask just like by a human being, you ask him once. Oh, that we all understand. It's very powerful. Second time becomes a little weaker. The third time, very, very weak. And by the fourth time, you just close your ears. You know, it's a broken record already. But with Hashem, the thousandth time we ask Him for forgiveness. Because we've been davening all our life. So add up all the times we've been asking Him for forgiveness. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times. And yet every day, three times a day, we make the blessing. Thank you, Hashem, for forgiving me. Really? This is which number time you asked Hashem for forgiveness already? Number uh, 10,000? Come on. And you sinned again, you asked for forgiveness again? Who are you kidding? But for Hashem it doesn't work that way. The 10,000th time is just as real, and just as potent, and just as powerful, and just as fresh as the very first time. This only Hashem is capable of. That's why we praise Hashem. We say, blessed are you who forgives in abundance. A human being can't forgive in abundance. It just gets weaker and weaker. We're finite, we're limited. It's impossible. But Hashem's forgiveness is an abundance. Abundance is not only the thousand times. It means even the first time it's a different level of forgiveness. The fact that the thousandth time is just as powerful as the first time means even the first and the second time it's something infinite. His forgiveness is infinite. It's a whole different category, a whole different level, a whole different degree, a whole different level of forgiveness. So it's not that the first time a human forgiveness and Hashem's forgiveness is the same. But after a while we grow tired. But Hashem never grows tired and Hashem never, never stops forgiving. It means even the first time is a difference. The fact that Hashem's forgiveness could last forever and go on and on and on and on without any diminishing, without any weakening, that means that right away you're dealing with something infinite. Versus a human forgiveness, since we're finite and limited, Therefore, eventually, it grows weaker. It means even the first time and the second time, it's limited. 
So that's why we praise Hashem for His forgiveness. A type of forgiveness that can be in abundance so we can continue to ask and ask again and again and again and again and be 100% certain, not 99.9%, 100% certain that Hashem forgives us and wholeheartedly. This is only, only Hashem who's infinite. Only infinite kindness. We can't even relate to that. Infinite kindness. Because we're finite. Find the kindest human being on earth. Infinite kindness. We're finite. We're limited. Only Hashem is infinite. All of His attributes are infinite. His mercy is infinite. His love is infinite. His kindness is infinite. His forgiveness is infinite. The pardon is a manifestation of the attribute of mercy. The divine attributes are not bounded by finite. They are infinite. As in the verse, for His mercies have not ended. Relative to infinity, there is no difference whatsoever between a small number and a large one. For before him all are considered as naught, and he makes equal the small and the great. Therefore, he removes our sins every year. That's why every single year we say in the Yom Kippur's prayers, yeah, that we thank Hashem for removing our sins every year. In other words, even though it's the same sins, you look at the prayer book, the prayer book, they don't reprint the prayer book. It's the same, exact same sins of last year, and the year before, and the year before. Here we are again, deja vu. And Hashem is forgiving, and we feel that forgiveness, and we feel cleansed and purified and uplifted and whole. I mean, a human being would say, come on. I mean, it's a broken record already. We did this already. But Hashem is not like it. Hashem is Forgive, forgive. And it's real, and it's. We mean it, and He means it. Only Hashem is capable of doing it. Every year, the same sins. And yet, it's like the first, for the very first time. What an inspiring thought that we can, with Hashem, you can always start all over again. There's no growing old, or tired, or jaded, or cynical, or. Hashem, everything is brand new. Every moment is brand new. But this moment is, it's already been already thousands of times. To infinity, a thousand, a million is one. So it's like one moment. The whole thing is brand new. Fresh energy, excitement, wholeness. What an amazing thought. We have the opportunity to recreate. Every moment is like brand new. As if for the very first time. And this is the whole foundation of Hasidus right in the beginning of the second part of Tanya, which, thank God, is online. And the Alter Rebbe brings from the Baal Shem to that every moment Hashem creates the world. Every moment is a brand new world moment. Literally a brand new moment. It's a brand new world. Every moment. It's not just a repetition. It's brand new. New energy, new possibilities. No matter what happened yesterday, no matter how much I messed up yesterday, no matter how much I'm... I can start every day is a new day. Every day I can start all over again. It's so optimistic. It's so hopeful. It's so, despite all the negativity, because we're overwhelmed by negativity. Everything around us is so negative and so jaded and cynical. And, and yet the Torah is the exact opposite. It's dynamic. It's vibrant. It's hopeful. It's optimistic. Hashem is, it's a brand new moment. And Hashem could forgive us like for the very first time. Imagine the very first time. Always virgin, always fresh, always new. That's, a, that's, a, that's what we praise Hashem. And that's in Yom Kippur, we praise Hashem. Every single year He removes our sins. The same sins as last year. 
And here we are again. And yet here we are with a whole excitement, with a whole enthusiasm, with a whole... And Hashem is forgiving us as if for the very first time. What a concept. You have to realize what we're saying. Such a beautiful, such a beautiful concept. So if a Jew nowadays would marry a non-Jew, a guy obviously, would, it, would Hashem accept? What would he have to do? Because I thought there was a sin that was not, you know, fixable, so to speak. Or it's just... The well, well, the Rebbe once spoke and said, the Torah is not just a history book. Why is the Torah telling us this story of Ezra? It's very applicable to our days, because unfortunately, we lost more Jews to assimilation than we did to Hitler. And the Torah is telling us that since it happened already in history, it's much likelier and it's much easier for it to happen again. That before Mashiach comes, when Mashiach comes, right before Mashiach comes, in our generation, we'll repeat exactly what happened then, that all those Jews who are intermarried will separate from the non-Jewish spouses and will marry Jews, or their spouses will convert halachically, if it's genuine and sincere. Um, and obviously it doesn't apply the same for men and women, right? Well, with a woman, because the children are Jewish, no even what? no matter what. But... It's also, right, for a woman, she can never transfer her Jewishness away. It's much more core for a woman than a man. And a man has that ability to trespass, to cross the boundaries. Um, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a sin, right? It's not to live together. And, not, and, and what message are you giving your children? If, if being Jewish meant nothing to the parent, they were ready to throw the whole Jewishness away and... and basically sever 3,800 years of Judaism in one moment, what kind of message are you giving your children? What possibility is there that your children will take Jewish life seriously? And it'll be a miracle. There are many cases where children of mothers who were Jewish went and married. They're 100% Jewish, and they do come back, and they do connect, but you're not helping them. It's very, you're making it much more difficult for them because the message of the parents is that being Jewish means nothing. You know, they're ready to throw everything away. Just follow your heart, not follow your what's right. Not follow Hashem and the Torah. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.